This is the WGNS Action Line, talking with Rutherford County newsmakers about what matters most to you. Now, your host, Scott Walker. Well, a good morning to you. It is 817 right now, and you're tuned in to WGNS on this Monday morning. Today is the 19th of September, and our first guest on the first half of the program, Dr. Elise Helford, professor of English and director of the Jewish and Holocaust Studies Minor. Good morning, doctor. How are you? Good morning. I'm just fine. How are you? I am doing good. Well, I understand the 14th Biannual Holocaust Studies Conference is coming up right around the corner. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, uh, MTSU has long hosted a conference addressing the Holocaust in a scholarly fashion where academics come together, in a teaching fashion where students and the public community can join us and learn about matters concerning the Holocaust. And we also also feature a survivor of the Holocaust who will come in and tell their story uh, in a contextualized situation where we can learn more not only about the past but also about the present and the future oh wow yeah you know i was talking to someone a couple of days ago and there are fewer and fewer holocaust survivors who are still around i, I mean that we're Indeed. seeing them pass away in great numbers at this point and we need to hear more from them to hear their story to further document history Absolutely. Uh, as they age and pass, um, it becomes more difficult to hear them. Uh, there's a great deal of technology involved in ensuring we will hear them in the future. Uh, many, many have recorded their stories, uh, and uh, there are video libraries, such as at the uh, United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's website, UH ushmm.org, uh, where you can listen to them. And in fact, a few years back, when I was uh, in Chicago, the, uni- the uh, Holocaust Museum there was featuring a virtual reality event in which you put on the goggles so that you can see in kind of 3D, and a survivor walked m- walks you through parts of one of the camps, I believe it was Auschwitz, and they walk you through so you see it and you hear them speak and you watch them. So I know there are great efforts to try and preserve this material uh, in as many ways as possible, but there is nothing comparable to actually meeting the person, hearing their story, shaking their hand, and thanking them for the gift of learning about this history so indeed we don't forget it we can't say never again in the sense that that slogan has been used because uh genocide continues to this day to this very moment but we can learn about these events when survivors come and tell us about them so that we can move towards a future in which we know enough to stop making the same mistakes to stop seeing people treat each other as less than human. Uh, uh, and at this conference, we will be featuring Sonia Dubois, who is a Knoxville, Tennessee resident, who was what we call uh, a child survivor, meaning she did not go through the camps, but she was hidden. Her parents 
made the very difficult decision when Jews were being rounded up and they would have gone, this is in the Netherlands, and they would uh, be going to the camps and they knew that they would die and their daughter would die with them and they made the difficult decision of uh, allowing uh, a friend to find her a home, a Christian home, so that she would not be known as Jewish and that she would be safe. And that is what happened to Sonia and she will tell her story at the conference on Friday afternoon. Uh, She will be there with uh, two others, the editors of her book. She recently published her memoir, which is also unusual. It was published in 2020, and um, you know most survivors published them either soon after the Holocaust, although that was difficult because people didn't necessarily want to hear about it. Um, they wanted to just move on. The war is over. The Holocaust is over. Let's just move on. But many wrote and eventually published them. And the more famous ones that we know, uh, The Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank, Elie Wiesel's Night, Primo Levi's Survival in Auschwitz, those texts were written fairly soon after. But survivors have been writing since then, some of them writing multiple books. But for Sonia, she had so many questions because her parents had not told her about her family. Family members were actually in her life. Her piano teacher was an uncle, but she was just told friend of the family. Um, and not told about her background. So the book that she published, her memoir, is a tale of finding out all these details over the course of her life to find some closure, to make some peace uh, with her family, her adoptive family who did love her but did keep this information from her, as well as her biological family. And, of course, you know, around the world there are museums for the Holocaust, documenting and and really holding and preserving documents for the Holocaust. I know, of course, one in Washington, D.C., and, you know, I've been there, Mm -hmm. and the one in Mexico City, even in Mexico, where they have Mm -hmm. a whole museum documenting genocide uh, around the world. And then I believe it's called Yad Vashem in uh, Israel, Mm -hmm. and I've been to that one as well. But they all hold different pieces of the puzzle no two are alike and these are places that if folks have never you know been to a holocaust museum that they should really make an effort to to go to one and if they can't they should learn more about it through mtsu absolutely mtsu hosts this conference and we also have courses on the holocaust um, that provide introductions from various disciplines. I teach a course in Holocaust literature uh, for general education students so that they're not majors in English, but I teach a course on Holocaust survivor literature where we read these memoirs. And uh, there are courses, there's a Holocaust course in the history department, uh, and there are elements of the Holocaust that people will bring into various classrooms, not only at the college level, but uh, Tennessee is a state that has a mandate that the Holocaust will be studied by students in our public schools. And so students will read um, at least one book in their middle school or high school experience to deal with it. But as you say, there's so much more to learn. Um, Folks may not know, but Tennessee also has a um, Tennessee Holocaust Commission that trains teachers, and we uh, host an educational event 
once a year for teachers at MTSU. This year that was held in July. And we tried to make as much of this as possible open to the public so the public can come and meet the survivor uh, at the conference on Friday afternoon uh, at MTSU. And um, I don't know if folks know this, and I don't want to get this wrong, but either at 60 or 65, Tennessee provides uh, the fees for taking one college credit course at MTSU. Well, once oh. you hit that age, you can come and take a free course, such as one on the Holocaust, to learn more just for your own edification. Now, I want to go back. You were saying something about how here in Tennessee, there are courses specifically for teachers to better understand the Holocaust so they can teach that history to students. And, and I know, sadly, when you talk to high school students, some high school students, they've never heard of the Holocaust, which is scary that they've not been taught it yet. And maybe that's because they're freshmen or they're sophomore. But at some point, they will learn about the Holocaust. And it's, it's so overwhelming to learn about because there's so many different parts of it. You know, it's just, it's, it's so yeah. huge. And a lot of times you find that uh, some folks get fascinated by the Nazis and not by the victims and the survivors. Um, so I know that um, for my students, I'm teaching a course this semester and in Holocaust literature for what are called upper division students, for juniors and seniors. So some are English majors, some are history majors, and some just wanted to take a course in the subject matter. And they all talk about what their interests have been. And a lot of times it, it can be limited to things like, well, I don't think the History Channel even does this anymore. Now they're onto ghosts and sharks. But for a while people nicknamed it the Hitler Channel because so many of the programs were about the Nazis and about World War II, but not about the victims and the survivors and what they went through. And so the students can be very moved and find it very powerful to learn about those details. When high school students or middle school students study it, they tend to study it either through a text, say if they're in middle school, that has very little precise content. So they'll study about a girl whose best friend is in danger because she's Jewish. And that's really all you learn. And then she helps her friend to escape. Or um, they may read, in high school, they may read uh, Elie Wiesel's Night, which tells his story of his life in Auschwitz. And it's very intense and very powerful. Um, but it's taught in the middle of an English class, in which first they read Romeo and Juliet, and then they read um, Elie Wiesel's Night, and then they read The Great Gatsby, without a lot of context. So one, I'm concerned you don't want to traumatize children, but you want them to learn. Uh, and two, they don't get enough background uh, and that kind of information so that the context all makes sense to them. And I've offered to come in and, you know, I'll come for a day before you study it and give your students background. And there used to be time for that. I, even, I and my colleagues used to even go into grammar school classrooms like fifth grade, and I'd create a PowerPoint that was appropriate for their age level in explaining generally the outlines and the details of what happened in terms they can understand. Um, you know, when you say 
uh, two-thirds of European Jews were murdered. To say that for a younger classroom, you have to say, what if only you and three other people in your class came to class tomorrow? And you didn't know what happened, you know? You find ways to talk to them about it, but they don't have time for it anymore. I never get those calls anymore to come into classrooms. There's so much investment in uh, standardized examinations and other things that, that I sometimes do hope that we will continue to think these things through in terms of what is most important for students to learn and how to learn it. Because if you don't study this material with an eye to making us more compassionate, well-informed citizens and human beings, just reading the book isn't going to do it. Um, Again, this morning we're talking with Dr. Elise Helford, professor of English and director of the Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor. And again, a uh, special conference is coming up just around the corner. And, you know, going back to what you were talking about, when students are reading different literature in English, they may jump from Dante's Inferno to The Great Gatsby and then to read a book that is about a Holocaust survivor or about somebody who survived the Holocaust and who was hiding out in a house or something. It may be Mm -hmm. hard for those high school students to differentiate from book to book fiction, from fact to history, you know? So in in English class, it's it's hard, I'm sure, to distinguish. It puts a lot, yeah, it puts a lot on the teachers. Um, to require that. I'm glad they do that. It's better than not doing anything. Uh, Back in the day, you may remember, we may all have seen Schindler's List. But now, uh, say at MTSU, none of my students have seen it. Literally none. I asked my class the other day, you know, what films have you seen? Some have seen films in class. They watch a film called The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, about two boys, one behind a fence and one outside of it. Uh, One uh, a... one imprisoned and the other not during the Holocaust. But um, uh, there's not a background I can count on as regularly. On the other hand, I have students who've who've gone to the museum. They've gone to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum and been very much moved by it. But like you said, the context is really important, and they only get that. They'll get that, you know, potentially in a social studies class. Uh, or that kind of thing. But I am very grateful that for those high school teachers, they can, if they opt to, work with the Tennessee Holocaust Commission or with us at MTSU, where we offer this separate. This is the conference we're having is more uh, for the public and for uh, uh, academics, for college professors, researchers, scholars, um, and our students. with those, you know, with that event, uh, with the survivor as a special um, uh, public um, experience, but they, um, the summer event that we host through the College of Education and the College of Liberal Arts working together, uh, will bring in either survivors or what are called second generation survivors, meaning the children of survivors who've grown up with survivor parents and can tell their stories the stories of the parents as well as their own stories because even that is a very important thing to learn about because what does it mean to grow up with very few relatives because they've been killed in the Holocaust um, but your parents were survivors 
um, a lot of times not even telling their children their stories, but wanting their children to live happy lives. And then only the next generation after them, the grandchildren, ever hear the stories. So those things do get passed down, and that is very important. But while these people are alive, um, we're very, very grateful that they're willing to come in and talk to teachers, to students, and to the general public about what they've lived through and why, what they want from us. What can we do for them uh, after living through what they've lived through? Sonia, who will be speaking uh, at our conference, uh, did not live through the camps again, but she did live through um, a world in which she looked very little like her parents, in which she knew she was adopted, but she thought she was what was called then a foundling. Um, and that was essential for keeping her safe. But it didn't tell her who she was. Her parents changed her name. She didn't know her real name for a long time. And even as an adult, her parents didn't want her to learn too much because that could pull her away from them. And let me add, it could pull her away from the Christianity that she had been brought into. Now, um, again, Sonia, Sonia Du Bois, a resident of Knoxville, Tennessee, she will be speaking yeah. on Friday Tell us how to go about going to MTSU to hear her speak and, and what what time and everything, because I know we only have a couple of minutes okay. left. So it's it, uh, Sonia Dubois will be speaking at, on Friday at 2 p.m. This will be at the MTSU Student Union, and that is um, on the MTSU campus, and there's a parking lot beside it that will be marked off. It'll have some signs, and you the best way to do to find it is to come in through the Rutherford Boulevard entrance to the campus and when you come in uh, you just pull up in there and turn to your right and you will start to see signs for the parking uh, and when you pull when you park there then you come into the student union and we'll be in the second floor ballroom we will have some lawn signs up uh, and um, all the information is on our website and I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. Um, it's www.mtsu.edu, and then a slash, and then Holocaust, H-O-L-O-C-A-U-S-T, and then an underscore, a little underline, studies. And on that page, on the Holocaust Studies page, you will find um, a menu that says Holocaust Studies Conference. And when you click on that, it'll show you the full schedule for the conference. There's a flyer for the speaker event, uh, and there are other details. Uh, MTSU certainly has a map to help you find it. And you can also um, email me if you would like to. If that's the best way for you, by all means, email me at ehelford at mtsu.edu, E-H-E-L-F-O-R-D at mtsu.edu, and I'll be very happy to help people uh, get there. So that's this Friday, the 23rd, and we're very, we're working very hard to make this uh, compelling and memorable event. Uh, and if folks want to attend more than just the survivor, uh, I certainly know I'll be presenting a paper on literature, and I look out at my audience, 
and I do my best to make sure if I have to interrupt myself in reading it and say, you know what I'm talking about is this that you can relate to in your life. I will do that because I want to meet the needs of that audience, even if I am doing this for my own research into literature and the representation of the Holocaust that may not interest people as much as what did happen in the Holocaust. Again, we're talking with Dr. Helford, professor of English and director of the Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor at MTSU, a special event coming up September 22nd, which is a Thursday, and then also Friday the 23rd of this week. And while we really don't have much time left, and, and maybe this could be a topic mm-hmm. for a future show, the, uh, the PTSD suffered by those who survived Absolutely. Holocaust, that's something you don't hear a lot about. No, um, because there was nothing called PTSD back then. And because we had won the war, right? America had won the war. There was a lot of focus in this country on moving forward and thinking positive. Look, you're out of the camps or you're happily in your home or you're reunited with your parents if they survived, whatever the situation just move on and move forward and think about the future. Some came to America. Some went to um, Palestine, which in 1948 became Israel, which has its own complexities and problems because there were Palestinians already living there. Uh, But for many of them, they were told, you're building Israel. Focus on that. Don't focus on your trauma or your past. And that that is not what we would recommend today. Sonia will be talking about that. Sonia Dubois will be talking about her own situation in which she didn't know if it was okay to call herself a survivor, and she certainly didn't know what to do with her trauma. But in her memoir, she writes short stories, and she puts a few of those in the memoir, and she writes letters to her mother and father. She writes um, letters from the perspective of her mother, trying to get into her mother's head and see what it must have felt like for her, and those were her therapy. And so um, she will have the book there. The bookstore will be selling her book, and she will even sign copies of it. So you can get some insights into those kinds of things through the survivor's memoirs and through Sonia's uh, presentation. And when you talk about Palestinians within Israel still today, mm-hmm. like you're saying, yeah. that's a whole nother complex issue. And again, it, it really is. I don't think the general public truly understands any of it, you know, and there's so much to be learned. Yeah, there is, and we do our best uh, with this conference to talk about those matters. We also bring in other survivors to campus at various times, so if you keep an eye on that webpage, uh, mtsu.edu slash holocaust underscore studies, uh, we bring in, we brought in a survivor who survived the Bosnian genocide, and we brought in a speaker in 2018 from Darfur, where there are still atrocities going on. So we try to inform the public as best uh, we can and get that information out there. And uh, we've even got a Facebook group uh, under Holocaust MTSU Holocaust Studies where folks can get more information. If you're on Facebook, uh, take a look for us there. Just look up MTSU Holocaust Studies in the search bar and you should find us. And we will try to always keep the public informed on these things because this stuff is still going on today. People are dying. The the Uyghurs in China, um, uh, there are atrocities in Yemen. And it's hard to keep informed on all of this stuff. And it's hard to function when you get depressed by it. I was, I believe, 12 because I was Jewish. Uh, I was 12 years old when I first started seeing videos uh, that they showed us at my synagogue 
of bodies being dumped into mass graves. They wanted to educate us very young. Um, and those things are traumatizing. On the other hand, they are also vital because if we're not invested in the lives and care of others, I don't think that's as good a way to live as doing what you can to learn about these things, to share these things, and to try to make the world um, a better place. Ultimately, though we talk about war, our goal is peace. And though we talk about violence, our goal is compassion. Again with us this morning, Dr. Elise Helford at MTSU. And, and we'd love to have you on the air again, perhaps a whole show sometime in the near future. And we'll set that up. But, uh, man, I'd love to. Touching That'd subject. be great. And, and, and I'll make sure that we keep coming back on when we can, uh, when you'll have us, to talk about these other events that we have so that everybody knows. Uh, we try to put posters up. Uh, sometimes that kind of thing gets very difficult. We have a small staff. This conference is put together by a very small handful of amazingly dedicated people uh, at MTSU who really care about this and want to get this information out there. So we really appreciate WGNS having us on uh, and you asking me uh, powerful and provocative questions to help present this in the most positive way possible. Well, thank you again for joining us this morning. Have a wonderful day. You too. Time right now, 8.42. Again, all of this coming up at MTSU September 22nd and 23rd. That is Thursday and Friday of this week. We'll post more details about that when we post this podcast on our website at WGNSRadio.com. More news and information comes your way in just a minute. Hello, this is Amanda from Animal City inviting your family to come do business with my family. All of us at Animal City would like to say thank you to the Murfreesboro and surrounding communities for supporting this family-owned business for 32 years. When you come see us, make sure to check out our two full floors full of great pets and supplies to keep them happy and healthy. Animal City for your dog, cat, reptile, bird, and much, much more. Animal City, 919 Northwest Broad Street in Murfreesboro. Hi, this is Peter Demas with Demas's Family Restaurants. Do you know somebody who has moved far away and is missing eating at Demas's? Well, Demas's Family Restaurants now offers many of our sauces and some of our food, such as pot roast and soup, to be shipped all across the nation. It's very simple. You just go to demasfamilykitchen.com and you can send an order to anybody as a gift all across this nation. You can send an order to anybody. Go to demasfamilykitchen.com. I'm out of Florence West. I like Adam's Place because you get friendly with everybody. They give you too much food and help you too much. Are you saying Adam's Place has spoiled you? Yes, sir. Real big, and I tell them that too. They've got me rotten. I would encourage anyone to come to Adam's Place. I'm Terry Deal. Call me for more information about Adam's Place, located at 1927 Memorial Boulevard, across from Walmart. The Action Line, on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. On this next portion of the program, we're going to be talking with Dr. Alyssa Haas, Assistant Professor of the Department of Geosciences, about heat mapping. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? I am good. Well, I've, I've read a little bit about this heat mapping going on in Nashville, and it's 
a project where you're partnering with Nashville to help communities manage neighborhoods that are vulnerable to extreme heat. So I guess tell us more about this and how this all got started. Yeah, so this has been a program with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration since 2017. And they fund uh, universities and cities to go into the actual city itself and partner with community members to heat map. And so we put sensors on cars and we have our community members drive predetermined routes throughout the day. And then we are able to take that data and and provide maps of where in the city is warmest and coolest. And we use that to better inform our efforts to cool down the middle of the city. And I've seen some pictures of the heat maps, like, for example, in the downtown Nashville area. And it's it's pretty wild because you're able to see ground temperature, temperature in the air. I, I mean, it's it's fascinating to look at. Yes, absolutely. And that's a big part of uh, this project is we're trying to figure out what factors are actually causing the really high heat areas and how does that connect with more vulnerable populations. And are you able to go back to Nashville, the city, and say, look, this area seems to be experiencing some of the the hottest temperatures, but yet there's a lot of homeless living in this area. So what can be done next to help out that population? Yes, absolutely. So one of our partners on this project was the Nashville Mayor's Office. Uh, Kendra Epcoitz was, uh, or is the sustainability manager over there. And so She was uh, the lead on this project, and then we partnered with them. And so she's a big part of this, and that will definitely be a goal of ours, is to come in and actually see who's being most affected and how can we help them. So I'm curious, what are some of the more dangerous areas as far as high temperatures go for vulnerable communities in Nashville? So any location that will have very densely packed buildings, lots of concrete, very little vegetation, those are going to be your hottest areas. So usually down in the urban core, and usually these are communities of color where our unhoused populations are, and so these are definitely vulnerable uh, populations in these areas. And when you talk about hot temperatures, what types of temperatures are you talking about? And, for example, is the pavement, the, the blacktop, is that really causing that big of a difference in the feeling of heat there versus somewhere else? Yes, uh, absolutely. So a urban core can be between 10 and 25 degrees warmer than a rural area. So this makes a huge difference not only during our summer, but when we have a heat event. And that's just something you can't escape. And then we end up having to run our air conditioners if you have an air conditioner even more, and it just kind of compounds on itself. Again, with us right now, Dr. Alyssa Haas, Assistant Professor of the Department of Geosciences, and again, working on a heat mapping research project. So has this project already concluded, or is there more to be done? So we collected our data August 14th. We needed a day that was hot and clear. So we worked with the National Weather Service Office in Nashville to find that date. So we've done our mapping, and now we're waiting for our data to come back. And so the next phase of the project, project is to start working with the data and seeing the locations within the city that are the warmest. Now, upon setting up this entire program and that first meeting that you had in the lobby of the Adventure Science Center in Nashville, interesting location to have it because I know directly behind that, 
there at one point was a huge homeless population living where, well, they're now kind of uh, unearthing, if you would, Fort Negley behind the museum. Of course, that was done a couple of years back. But there at one point was a huge homeless population right behind that museum. That's interesting. I didn't know that. So tell us more. God, we only have a couple of minutes left, but tell us a little bit more about how people can learn more about this heat mapping project and, and where can we see more pictures of it? So right now we are in a holding pattern, so we get data back from uh, the company that is processing it from our sensors. So more information will start coming up mid to late fall, and you can look at the Nashville.gov website for that okay and and we'd love to have you back on the air whenever more information is available once everything is put together that way we can learn more about the heat mapping research and and how it's going to play a part in in helping some of the most vulnerable communities in our area absolutely and again with us this morning, Dr. Alyssa Haas, Assistant Professor of the Department of Geosciences. And you can learn more about this on MTSU's website as well. I believe just go to mtsunews.com and maybe search heat mapping, and there you'll find more details. But thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Time right now, 8.50. Stay with us. We do have more news and, again, information coming your way from MTSU in just a second. Time again right now, 8.50. Stay with us. If you're looking for an authentic relationship with financial experts who genuinely care about your unique needs, Capstar Bank is for you. Capstar Bank is dedicated to the people of this community. Capstar Bank wants to help you reach your financial goals. Because at Capstar Bank, you matter to us. Capstar Bank, 2230 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, CapstarBank.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Time right now, 8.51, and now in studio with us, Jarrett Jerry Decker, the new Jacobs Chair of Excellence in Accounting and Professor of Practice in the Jennings A. College Jones of Business. How are you this morning? Doing so well. How are you, Scott? I am doing good. So tell us first a little about, about the Jacobs Chair of Excellence in Accounting. Uh, absolutely. Joey Jacobs, who is, of course, a trustee at MTSU, uh, donated a substantial amount of money to create an endowed chair um, to bring in someone into the accounting department. We have a, a really strong de accounting department in MTSU. Uh, wonderful professors. They get terrific ratings if you check out Rate My Professors. And I think Mr. Jacobs had a concept that he wanted to bring someone with maybe a little bit different, an unconventional background into the mix of the accounting department. So he created this uh, uh, you know, funded chair and uh, ultimately I was extremely fortunate to be invited to join the faculty based on that uh, that donation from Mr. Jacobs. You know, I was going to go into that next. It's always interesting to learn the different backgrounds of those who are involved with MTSU, different professors, but a lot of them come from just a huge variety of backgrounds in real life work experiences. Tell us a little bit about your background. 
Sure. Thanks for that, Scott. Well, I had a background in uh, sort of an unusual background. I'm a lawyer uh, originally by training. I became a CPA at age 41, so I'm kind of late to the game of accounting. Um, But originally I was a trial lawyer for many years, and then I worked for the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, where I was a trial lawyer enforcing fraud laws effectively. And as a result of that, I I came to focus heavily on accounting-related cases. Um, Around the time I was doing that work, if you might remember those big accounting scams, Enron, WorldCom, uh, and, and those. We had a whole wave of accounting scandals, and people had really lost confidence in in, uh, in U.S. corporate financial reporting and U.S. accounts. And so I got into this uh, work of, of basically bringing actions against uh, corporate executives, auditors, other business people who had falsified their accounts. And uh, so I worked in that field for a while. I was a trial lawyer for the SEC and then for the uh, a new entity called the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. That was the entity that was created to be basically the cops for the accounting profession. It was after Enron and WorldCom, and there was a decision made uh, by the U.S. Congress that we need a specialized force, basically, to watch over accountants and auditors and make sure they're doing their job. Um, so I did that for a number of years, and then I switched into international development. Um, so I worked in a accounting and auditing development in developing countries, in former communist countries um, and other countries in in Eastern Europe, um, Southeast Asia and Central Asia and other places. Again with us this morning, Jerry Decker and again, new Jacobs Chair of Excellence in Accounting at MTSU in the Jennings A. Jones College of Business. So uh, dive in a little deeper to some of the things you'll be doing there at MTSU in the weeks, the months, and and years to come. Well, the concept is, um, first I get an opportunity to teach and join the, the great teaching team in the accounting department at MTSU. So right now I'm teaching several courses and principles of accounting, and then I'm teaching an advanced accounting class for master's degree students. I tend to focus a lot, as you might guess, from the background I've described on fraud and what the potential is for fraud in accounting and how uh, our future students can, can fight against that and make sure the right thing is done. Um, so I'm teaching, but also because of the generous funding from, from Mr. Jacobs, I'll have an opportunity to do some other things, to do some international outreach, uh, to connect up MTSU um, with, uh, with international regulatory bodies, international uh, educational um, um, institutions, to, so that our students will have a better chance to kind of connect up with, with the global uh, system, really, of corporate accounting and auditing. So I, I'll have, hope to have a chance to bring that in. We have other people in the department also who have excellent international background uh, at the, uh, in the accounting department, but I'll be adding to that that um, kind of international connection. Also intend to do some writing. I've done some writing in the past. Um, I'm very interested specifically in the role that, that accounting and auditing can play in former communist countries and helping them create market economies. Um, a big problem in those countries is, is lack of transparency, that nobody trusts anybody, that nobody believes any information that they get, and that really keeps their their businesses kind of locked up, prevents them from getting uh, good investment from outside and inside their countries. So um, I'm interested in that topic. I worked on that for a number of years, and I, I hope and expect I'll be doing some writing in that area as well. Fascinating topics for sure, especially when it comes to some of the countries out there where their own citizens don't fully trust or even understand different parts of the government. Haiti would be a good example where there's been corruption for years and years. Then the Dominican Republic. And it's, it's got to be fascinating to do research and to dive into these subjects. 
You know, you're absolutely right, Scott, and, and you've really pointed to what is, I think, probably the biggest problem that separates poor countries from rich countries, and that, that is that there's no trust, that there's not information that people trust. Think about it. If you're going to create a business, let's say you've got a great business idea, but you don't have any money, and let's say I've got some money, but I don't have any great business ideas, the two of us have to be able to get together as strangers and trust each other enough to go into business together, and a lot of that depends on having a reliable system of information that we can share with each other. If your business is creating accounting information and auditing information that I believe, then I'm more likely to give you some money to help you grow your business. Um, but if I don't believe any of your information, then I probably won't do that. Well, take that uh, little transaction between you and me and multiply that by a thousand, by 10,000, by a hundred thousand. And you have one of the key differences between a rich country and a poor country um, is that that missing element of trust that enables strangers to get together and create value and build businesses. And, you know, when you look at some countries out there, Cuba, for example, it's almost a matter of the citizens are forced to believe certain aspects of government and, and how their government works, never knowing what happens on the outside world. I, I believe even in, in Cuba, they've got special uh, devices in place so that Cubans can't search the internet outside of certain areas. It, it makes it even all the hard, well, much harder to trust. You're absolutely right. And, and you're pointing to what I would say is a really key connection that economic freedom and political freedom are intimately related. And you really don't tend to get one without the other. If, if you don't have a free economy of people uh, able to own property, able to make transactions in their own interest, able to act on their own, um, and you don't have a political system that allows free speech and open uh, discussion, um, both of those are similar ways of testing good ideas and, and identifying good ideas and rejecting bad ideas. And if you don't have that openness, that freedom, um, then, then bad ideas tend to prevail. Of course, we always have the naysayers in America who talk about conspiracies and how they, they can't trust their own government here in America. But I, I'm guessing a lot of those people who tend to think that route, they've never really been to some of these other countries where trust is a word that almost doesn't exist. That, that's a great point as well, if I can say. Um, there are about 200 countries in the world, depending on how you count it. If you're in a country where the police and the judges are not routinely bribed, you're already in the top quarter. You're already in the top 50. And beyond that, if you have protection for property rights, if you have recognition of contracts, if you have a way, again, for, for people to connect with each other in business and other ways of life in an open way with open communication, then you're really fortunate to be in a country that's really among the top. And, and it's always important to keep that perspective, and it's always important to remember ways we can improve our country and, and ways that we can you know, make things more fair, better, make sure everybody gets included. But it's really important to understand what we have here, which is a, a free system with property rights, freedom of speech, and all of that has to be preserved and, I believe, appreciated. We need some gratitude. Again, Jerry Decker with us this morning with MTSU, and we'd love to have you on the air again real soon and, and maybe... We'll have more time in the future. <laughs> that sounds terrific. Thanks so much for having me on, Scott. I really Thank appreciate it. Thank you for it. joining us. Nine o'clock right now is the time. You're tuned to WGNS Murphy's Bro again on this Monday morning, today, the 19th of September.